Well, let us pray. Lord God, your word is piercing. It is to correct and rebuke us, sharper than a two-edged sword. And we pray today that in your mercy and steadfast love, your word indeed will pierce our heart, expose our iniquity, and draw us in repentance and faith to you so that we may live lives that honour you and honour your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. We know what it is to lament. Malaysia laments today a tragic accident, very much a lament that comes deeply home to us. Most of us here will have flown out of KLIA in the past. Some of you, like me, have flown that exact route. Many of us have flown Malaysian Airlines maybe many times. Could have been us. We've seen graphic pictures of lament across the world from that one accident. Maybe we'll never forget the pictures of that young couple in Beijing airport, absolutely distressed in anguish as they lament what seems to be the death of their family or friends there. It is a grief that for probably several hundred people around our world from that one accident yesterday will never be erased from their lives. Grief goes on and on. Those who suffer deep tragedy, a shocking tragedy, may never fully recover. And the pain and anguish of such grief, whatever its cause, rests deeply in hearts and souls. Of course, we don't know yet what caused the accident yesterday, human error, terrorist attack, people traveling on false passports perhaps, may have just been a freak of nature. The lament and grief we see in the book of Lamentations, as we've seen over the last three weeks, is a particular grief, a particularly deep grief. The book is not meant as a book fundamentally of comfort. It gives us words by which we can express something of our own grief and lament in various situations, but but this is particular. This is the lament of God's people who are under the punishment of God justly and fairly for their sins. That is not always the lament and grief we face. That is probably not the lament and grief of those who are grieving yesterday's disaster. But of course, there are many similarities. But as I say, fundamentally, this book is not a book of comfort, although there are elements of that most strongly, as we saw last week in chapter 3. But fundamentally, this is a book of warning. The deep pain that is being expressed here by God's people that, that is raw, bitter, 
and full of deep distress is a warning to us not to pursue similar lives as they. They were God's people, given all the privileges of God under the old covenant. Jerusalem, the capital city, the place of the temple, the joy of the whole earth as they would sing, the place they thought would never fall. King descended from David as promised by God, dwelling in a land promised to Abraham by God, made into a great nation by God as promised to Abraham, all gone. Theirs is a not merely political lament, not a geographical lament, but it comes to the core of their identity, a theological lament. And in some ways, this book of Lamentations feels longer than it is. It may be that after this fourth chapter, some of us are thinking, oh, not more, not more grief, not more lament. And after the high point in the middle of the book, as we saw last week, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, his mercies never come to an end, we might think, well, why doesn't the book stop there? Why doesn't it just lead us there? But no, it plunges back into grief, back into more grief. Admittedly, this chapter is shorter, as is the one that is following that someone else will preach from next week. And in some ways, this chapter today is a little bit more restrained in its descriptions of the anguish and distress. After the high emotion of the first three chapters. But it's not telling us that grief finishes quickly. It's not saying that this is quickly resolved at all. But rather is forcing us to come to the mercy and steadfast love of God as the waves of grief continue and continue. As I've said in the past weeks, it is a book that demands to be read slowly. This is not a a book for speed reading. It is a book to ponder and reflect line by line. As we've also seen in past weeks, this chapter uh, has 22 verses. Last week had 66, but... The first three chapters have, in effect, uh, first two, sorry, have three lines to a verse. Last week was just one line to a verse, same length. But now we're two-thirds the length because each verse has just two lines, following the pattern of a Hebrew alphabet, a way perhaps of saying here is a complete statement of, of grief or complete statement even of warning. This chapter begins with an astonishing reversal a surprising and a shocking reversal. And like we've seen on two previous occasions, the chapter does not merely begin with an academic or detached description. Verse 1 does not say, the gold has grown dim. But rather it says, how the gold has grown dim. That little word how at the beginning is not, again, a scientific word of, well, how does gold grow dim? But rather an expression of, pain or anguish or shock or grief, how the gold has grown dim. Apparently gold doesn't really grow dim. It doesn't really tarnish. I'm not wealthy enough to have lots of gold in my pockets, so I've never been able to test this firsthand. 
but apparently gold doesn't particularly tarnish or grow dim. It's a, a picture image here. The pure gold is changed. Well, again, gold doesn't really change either. Not even pure gold. But what's being suggested here is a picture of the glory of Jerusalem, maybe focusing on the temple, but not limited to that probably. The temple in its heart had gold upon gold in the ark and the cherubim and the mercy seat and so on, now all taken away captive, not literally tarnished, not literally grown dim, but gone. So from gold and glory down to nothing, the holy stones lie scattered. The holy stones of the temple, the whole city, in fact, was the holy city of God, the place where God dwelt and where his holy nation dwelt around him. But they're scattered. The whole of the central city of Jerusalem was absolutely torn down to its foundations, not a building left, because Nebuchadnezzar had made the mistake when the Babylonians surrounded the city 10 years before of accepting their surrender and leaving the city intact. And he didn't make the same mistake twice. And so when he attacked and defeated at this time, there was nothing left at all. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious children of Zion, worth their weight in fine gold, verse 2 says, how they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. Now we're used to the biblical imagery of us being made like clay pots in potter's hands and that's a, a special image for us but that's not what's meant here the children of God in Jerusalem Zion is the poetic name for it were regarded as worth more than gold even fine gold people matter more than gold and precious jewels to God and yet now they're like earthen pots not as a way of saying they've been created by God the potter but earthen pots are virtually disposable. They break quickly, they shatter quickly, you just go and get another one, you don't replace it. So from gold, which is so precious and durable, to just a mere clay pot. I'm not quite sure that we can say it's the equivalent of our little polystyrene packets that we get our meals in sometimes if you take away. It's not quite as disposable and junky as that, but. It's a, a big change, isn't it? The city that was a golden city is now in ruins, and the people who were so valued are now just like earthen pots. And we've seen over the past three weeks pictures of them dead, pictures of them lying in the street, fainting in the streets, children unable to have enough strength to survive, people not having food and just dropping dead, and of course many being taken away into exile. What a change, what a contrast, what a reversal is being dis uh, displayed here. And how much the human life, at least of the people of Judah, has been devalued by this conquest of Babylon. Those who are worth more than gold are now just mere earthen pots. Even jackals offer the breast. They nurse their young. Here is a Almost a perverse contrast, a shocking contrast. 
we would think that of all the creatures of earth, the ones that showed the most tender care and compassion for their own children would surely be humans. And amongst humans, maybe surely God's own people. But jackals, who are not reputed to be particularly friendly beasts, let me tell you, even they offer their breast to their young. But what about God's people? The daughter of my people has become cruel, like ostriches as well, which again have a reputation for a lack of love and compassion even for their own cruel beasts as well. The picture is extended so that we understand it better in verse 4. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. We've seen similar glimpses in previous chapters. What happened in history anticipated by Moses and other prophets Described also by the prophet Jeremiah was this, that for the 18-month siege before the fall of Jerusalem to Babylon, parents even ate their children in order to stay alive. And under the stress of that siege for so long, as hunger grew and grew, relationships fell apart. People stole from each other, hated each other, relationships, marriages broke down, and even children. Maybe when they die, they then get cooked and eaten. Maybe they're even put to death to be food, even for their own parents. It's an appalling picture. And here the description is that the children who've survived the siege are dying of thirst and famine. They're begging for food. No one gives it to them because everyone's looking after themselves, although there's not really enough for them either. And they're thirsty. They cannot get anything to drink in the ruins of Jerusalem. This, is, this picture here in poetic language fits what we know from history, from the book of Kings, Jeremiah, and other places as well. And then the other reversal in verse 5. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who are brought up in purple Embrace ash heaps. Now, being good Anglicans, it's not referring here to purple as in bishops who wear purple shirts often, but rather it's those who come from the hierarchy, the aristocracy, from the palace. That is, they've gone from being prince to pauper. They're used to feeding on the best food. And now they're on ash heaps. They perish in the streets for lack of food. It's not that they've gone from delicacies to just basic food. They've gone from delicacies to nothing, to famine and the threat of death. Why has all this happened? This is not just a political disaster. It's not merely explained, as we've seen each week, by Babylon's army being bigger than Judah's, and that explains what's going on, although that was true. But there is a deep theological foundation here. The chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, and no hands were wrung for her. Now, if you don't know Sodom, then that comparison is a little bit meaningless. 
But in the Bible, Sodom is the archetypal evil, wicked city. There is nothing worse in Scripture. Sodom was the place of gross sexual indecency and general wickedness back in the book of Genesis. Abraham's nephew Lot chose land near Sodom. Later he moved towards Sodom. And later we see him as a resident of Sodom. And he was rescued through Abraham's intercession when Sodom came under the fierce wrath and judgment of God for its overall deep and perverse wickedness. The extent of Sodom as the model of such wickedness and God's judgment is reflected in the fact that it is used as a model or comparison or as a, uh, as a marker of wickedness so many times in the Bible. It's referred back to in the book of Deuteronomy, for example. Many of the prophets refer back to Sodom. We hear of Sodom again in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, Amos, and Zephaniah. It doesn't stop in the Old Testament, in the New Testament as well, as we've heard in our reading in Matthew, in Luke, in 2 Peter, in Jude, and in the book of Revelation. It's not that Sodom comes back in history and they're dealing with Sodom. It's that all those references go all the way back to Genesis 19 and the destruction of Sodom. They were so bad and so wicked and God brought fierce judgment on them. But in comparison, what this verse is shockingly saying is that what has happened to Jerusalem is even worse. That in the sudden destruction of Sodom, as we know God came down and destroyed it all in a moment, what's happened to Jerusalem is even worse and the implication is you have been so wicked, even though you're God's people. That, in fact, makes it worse that you've been so wicked. Sodom was never descended from Abraham, though all peoples belong to God. So what's being said here is that Sodom was destroyed in an instant. Nobody wrung their hands in grief, suffering in the slow destruction. But here for Jerusalem, for Zion, a lingering death. An 18-month siege, the destruction of the city by uh, God, by, through Babylon's army. And then people are left, those who are left alive, some taken into exile to the grief of being in a strange land. And others who are left behind eking out some form of existence in the rubble and ruins of the city. That is the suffering and the pain and the grief and the lament goes on and on and on. It doesn't just end suddenly. And so in that sense, it's even worse. The chastisement of the daughter of my people has been even greater than the punishment of Sodom. Because it's so bad. That's an important point being reflected here, implied at least in the poetry. Given that it's poetry, it doesn't come out with sort of theological statements so much as implies it through the poetic language. And what it's saying is this, that, to those, that for those to whom much is given, like Judah and Jerusalem, much is expected. There's a higher degree of accountability and culpability before God. The privilege of being God's people, the privilege of being, as it says, my people or the daughter of my people means that they are held to a higher degree of accountability. We see that reflected many times in both Old and New Testament. 
It's not a new idea. It's not unique to here. In one sense, we could say sin is equal in its sinfulness, whether committed by the Sodomites or the Jerusalemites. But because the people of Jerusalem are God's chosen people, his covenant people, to whom have been made the promises and given the land and the city and the temple and the presence of God, their sin is in some senses even greater before God, and thus their punishment and chastisement is even greater than the wickedness of Sodom. It's a warning to us, because to us has been given even more than was given to the people of Jerusalem. For we also are God's people, but we've received the full scriptures of both Testaments. And we know of the glorious death of Christ for us. To us has been given even more, and before God we are even more accountable for what God has entrusted to us. To us much is given, and we will be held accountable for that before God on the final day. I'm not sure if you ever saw, because this film was banned in this country, but the film Schindler's List it was a heart-rending film. It comes out of a novel based on a true story. The novel's by Thomas Keneally, an Australian writer. The true story is of a man, Oskar Schindler, a German, who during Hitler's war uh, saved the lives of well over 1,000 Jewish people. He's remembered today by the Jews as one of the uh, the righteous Gentiles, and in the Yad Vashem uh, Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem, his name is among those Gentiles who are honored for saving Jewish lives. He was a businessman, a fairly uh, mixed-up character in many ways, but he did all sorts of uh, brave, generous, and devious things to preserve the lives of Jewish people. When the film came out 20 years ago, uh, one of the things that was surprising about the film was that it was in black and white. It was quite a powerful image to see uh, 1940s being depicted in black and white. It showed the, the suffering, taking away the color of life. Well, here too, we get a, a sense of that. In verse 7, the princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral, that is, bright-skinned and shiny and red and healthy, the beauty of their form was like sapphire. The language is of color, brightness. But the contrast in verse 8 is now their face is blacker than soot. Not because they've turned to being chimney sweeps or something like that. Not because they're working in a coal mine and they're just covered in black. But rather, they're not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It's become as dry as wood. This is a picture of malnourishment. The picture of suffering, a picture of struggling in the face of a famine, and the color is gone. The ruddy complexion, the sapphire, the bright color, the whiteness even has gone. It's just becoming dull, gray, and black. It's a picture of long, drawn-out dying. If you've seen people dying of cancer over a long time, gradually the color disappears. They look gray and wan or yellow, depending on where the cancer is. And here the color is gone, as it's a long, drawn-out suffering that the people of God are enduing. And then a, a, a strange word to bring a comparison. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger. Now, I don't imagine for a minute that the people of Jerusalem were fairly happy when the sword of Nebuchadnezzar's army pierced their chests. 
thinking, oh, phew, I'm quite happy that I'm not going to suffer famine here. I doubt there was much happiness at all. But that's the irony of the comparison. It was a shocking thing to be killed by the sword of Nebuchadnezzar's army when they conquered the walls of Jerusalem. But in some ways they were better off than those who are left behind, who are suffering this malnourishment, famine, wasting away this long lament. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger who wasted away, pierced not by sword, but pierced by lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women, compassionate women, doesn't sound compassionate, but the hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. A gut-wrenching horror. It does not get worse than that. So far, we've just had description from our narrator, poet, journalist, whoever he is, telling us what he's seen. Like the camera shot that pans around, showing us scenes of grief and lament, like we've seen in Beijing Airport yesterday and KLIA. But now comes more analysis of all of this. In verse 11, for the first time in this chapter, Yahweh's name is mentioned. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. Full vent. He doesn't, he's not restrained here at all. He's poured out his hot anger and he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. Not literally a fire, doesn't consume stone, but the picture image is quite strong and evocative. Notice the repeated, well, repeated ideas of fierce anger. Full vent to his wrath, poured out hot anger, kindled a fire. Three lines saying much the same thing for emphasis to make it clear to us why this has happened. Jerusalem totally destroyed. It's typical imagery of divine wrath. It's not as we've seen in past weeks, the same as in past weeks. It's not because God is just bad-tempered. It's not because God didn't sleep very well that night and he's got up pretty angry and grumpy. This is a wrath that is clearly, deliberately triggered by a climax of hundreds of years of immorality and idolatry. This is God judging sin. And what follows in the verses remaining are three aspects of that sin that are highlighted. We've seen various descriptions in the previous three chapters. Some of those overlap here. Here are three particular things that are picked out, if you like. The first is a false religious trust. A particular trust, it seems, in the city of Jerusalem and the temple as the place of, of security for the people of God. For we know, as Jeremiah very evocatively says, the temple, the temple, the temple, that is your hope. Because they've placed their hope in the city and in the temple as a false religious trust. Probably that was increased because 10 years before, when Nebuchadnezzar surrounded the city but did not destroy it, it probably increased their sense of, we can never fall because the temple is here. So what does the writer say in verse 12? 
The kings of the earth did not believe, nor did any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. The implication is that the people of Jerusalem never thought that either. That is, people in the world in general thought that Jerusalem was impregnable. It's built on a ridge. Three or more sides are fairly safe from attack. It's only the northern side that is a bit more vulnerable. Surrounded by a wall with a waterway channeled under by Hezekiah to give water in the middle of a siege, surely this city could never fall. We know that for Israel under Joshua, when they conquered the land, it took until David, 400 years after Joshua, before Jerusalem was conquered by the Israelites. This is a fairly safe city. But the people of Judah had had a false religious trust. That is, they thought the temple was the religious icon that guaranteed them security from any enemy. They'd placed their trust in the things of God, but not in God himself. A subtle but significant wrong mistake. Now for us, sometimes we, we may be tempted to think falsely about good things from God as though that is our security. We've heard of Christians in the past, you may be like this, you may know people like this who think, I've been baptized, therefore I'm safe. I belong to the church, therefore in God's eyes I'm one of his and I'm safe. Or I go to Bible study, or I've been to seminary, or I help lead a Bible study group or do some ministry. That somehow that guarantees our security on the day of judgment from God. Not so. False religious trust is a subtle but significant error. So it's not that the city of, Judah, of, of Zion is their refuge and strength, but God is the refuge and strength. So often we come to the things of God, but not to God himself. And that was the mistake of the people of Judah. They thought that because God had put his presence in the middle of the temple, in the middle of the city of Jerusalem, in the middle of the promised land, and because God had made the promises of a Davidic king to David and all these other promises to Abraham, well, we must be safe. We're children of Abraham. Not so. It is to God alone that they should turn, not to the things, the promises, the gifts of God in their midst. And then secondly, in verse 13, Onwards, The second sin that's highlighted, we've already seen it as well in chapter 2, was false leadership. In verse 13, it's put like this. This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests, who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. I don't think it means that directly these prophets and priests had actually killed righteous people, though there may have been some of that. We know that Jeremiah's life was under threat, for example. But rather that by their false leadership, prophet and priests had led to the death of God's people. How is that? Well, as we saw in chapter 2, verse 14, the prophets have not exposed the iniquity of God's people. The prophets and the priests, presumably, the leaders of the people, have basically said, you're okay, I'm okay, thumbs up. We're all right. By not exposing the sins of the people, well, it keeps people fairly happy. Nobody likes their sins being exposed. But it's a false hope, a wickedly false hope. One that the destruction of Jerusalem shows was a terribly false hope. 
false prophets, false priests, false leaders who do not hold up the sins of God's people, who are not faithful to God's word, might be popular. They might fill churches and pulpits around the world because people like to be told that their lifestyle is acceptable to God. There are church denominations and church leaders, significant leaders in our world, who are encouraging all sorts of practices of immorality and idolatry, compromising the first commandments of the Ten Commandments, wickedly leading people down the wrong path to paths of judgment one day under God. And that's what happened here. And the blood of the righteous will be on the hands of those false prophets and false priests. As God made clear, for example, to Ezekiel the prophet at exactly this time, when there were already people in exile, just before the fall of Jerusalem. Ezekiel, you are a watchman. You must call the people to account for their sins. If you do not warn them, then on the judgment day, their blood is on their heads and yours. If you do warn them and they don't turn, the blood is on their heads, but not yours. That's a true leader, a true prophet. And Ezekiel fulfilled that ministry to those who were in exile at the time. That's the role of Christian leadership. That's what a true prophet or priest or leader, pastor, preacher, teacher, whatever may be, is called to do. It's not comfortable. One of the great idolatries of Christian leadership is being a people pleaser, wanting to say the things that will make people happy because you become popular. You'll fill the empty seats. The great aim or or calling, though, for the leaders of God's people is to be a God-pleaser. That's to say the hard words. In many respects, it would be much easier these four weeks for me being here not to deal with lamentations at all. But simply to say, isn't it good that we shouldn't lament because we're living after Jesus, life's all okay for us. Keep on going, you're doing well. That might make you happier. It'd be easier for me. But it would be terribly false thing to say. Not that I know your sins or you know mine, But all of us face the judgment of God and all of us face the warning of this book. We must be careful in judging our leadership and for those who are in leadership to be a God pleaser, not a people pleaser. And so their punishment in verse 14. Ironically, they wandered blind. For much of the Old Testament, prophets are called seers. Well, that's a person who sees But in punishment, they wandered blind through the streets and they were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. In fact, they said, away, unclean people, uh, unclean people cried at them, away, away, do not touch. Now, maybe that's particularly the unclean, the priests. The priests are meant to be the clean ones and the the priests are meant to, to judge those who are unclean to keep them out of the assembly of God's people. But now, ironically, The prophets who could see can't, they're blind. And the priests who are meant to be clean are now unclean. And the people are saying, keep away, keep away to the priests and the leaders. And that's the judgment and the punishment of God. And so they became fugitives and wanderers. Words that echo deliberately the punishment on Cain when he killed his brother Abel. Sent further east away from Eden as a fugitive and as a wanderer. And people said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. That was Cain's fear. 
that people would not accept him or maybe bring vengeance against him. Nowhere to rest their heads is the punishment of God. And so the Lord himself has scattered them. He'll regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests, no favor to the elders. And we know that in the exile at the fall of Jerusalem, both before and after it, the the leaders like priests and prophets were taken away to exile, scattered by God, Ezekiel being one of them. Both a prophet and a priest, he was. This is a warning that still stands. The destruction of Jerusalem, terrible though it was, was in large part to the false leadership that had existed for centuries, from their kings, their prophets, their priests, and others. We see the false prophets in abundance in the book of Jeremiah, for example. And our days, these days, are no different among the people of God in the churches of God around our world. The third mistake highlighted in this part of the book, in verse 17, our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation which could not save. Again, there's a slight irony there. They're actually looking for a nation who could save, but none could. They're looking in vain. What's happening here is a false political trust. We know that ancient Judah, like ancient Israel in the north before it, turned to political solutions for its security and salvation. Many of the prophets warned severely. Isaiah, Hosea, Hosea judges Israel, uh, Ju- uh, Judah by saying, and Israel by saying that they're like silly doves fluttering to and fro trying to find a political solution from Egypt or Assyria or Babylon to keep the nation secure. And that's what's been happening up to the fall of Jerusalem. It's one reason why Nebuchadnezzar has come back 10 years later so fierce because the puppet king he put there has turned to Egypt for help, away from Babylon. Political solutions are no solutions, is what's being told here. Now again, whilst there are great differences between the people of God today and then, for we are a church, not a nation. This applies to the church of God these days, not to nation. One of the great dangers is is pinning our hopes on political solutions. That was what I sensed in Malaysia a bit last year, was the feeling that somehow the election result could bring a solution for the people of God in this country. Because the election result didn't go the way of virtually every Christian I know in this country wanted it to do. And now that the leader of the opposition has been judged guilty again and no longer can contest the by-election, etc., where does that place political solutions in this country? And in the end, for Christians, it may not be relevant. It may not matter. If the government had changed, it may be no different. It may be worse. Politics is never the solution for the people of God, for the gospel, for the church. Of course, there may be political preferences, there may be better solutions, but there's no complete solution in politics anymore, not since the day of Jesus in our world. 
we need to be cautious that we don't have the same false political trust. They look for a nation which could not save. They dogged our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near, our days were numbered, for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles in the heavens. They chased us on the mountains. They lay in wait for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, literally Messiah, but referring to the king descended from David, was captured in their pits as King Zedekiah was. Eyes gouged out and killed back in Babylon, of whom we said under his shadow we shall live among the nations. There was no political solution. Babylon was not the answer. Egypt was not the answer. And before those two great world powers, Assyria was not the answer either. Politics, in the end, is a failure for the people of God. Not that Christians should not be involved in politics, not that we should take no interest in it, but we should not place our trust falsely in any political solution. Despite all of this lament, this chapter oddly ends with hope. Oddly, I say, because it's slightly unexpected, like we saw last week. Here it's not such a strong statement of hope, more in a sense of a prayer, but it does nonetheless say rejoice in verse 21 and be glad, but it's not talking to the people of Zion here. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz, but to you also the cup shall pass, you shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish, and he will uncover your sins. Edom, the nation descended from Esau, the brother of Jacob, a neighboring nation to the south and the east of Judah, had been an ally with Babylon in the destruction of Jerusalem, clapping its hands and helping, rejoicing in the final overthrow of Jerusalem and Judah. But what this word is saying in hope is that Edom's joy and rejoicing at the fall of Judah will be short-lived. God will bring its judge, his judgment against them in due time. But the punishment that is placed on Judah, the exile, will end. It will not last so long. I mean, it lasts 50 or so years, but not that long. What the writer is saying in effect is, Judah, you might laugh now. But he who laughs last, laughs best. And there is joy coming for the people of Judah. The exile will end. The basis of that hope is not spelled out here, but was spelled out last week in the center of the book. For the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, and his mercies never come to an end. But they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. This hope is based on the sovereign justice of Yahweh. Not merely the God of God's people, Israel and Judah, but the God of all nations. Lamentations warns us that there is no escape from the judgment of God, a message we might prefer not to hear, a message I might prefer not to preach. But we cannot shy away from reality. If I offer you false hope, then I condemn you and me. 
we are being warned by this picture of judgment to make sure that our lives are not like theirs, that our lives are not placing trust falsely in religious things, in leadership, or in politics, that we are rather repenting and turning to God, giving away lives of immorality and idolatry, and throwing ourselves on the steadfast love and mercy of the Lord manifest to us even more clearly in the cross of Christ himself. For as we sang in the first song, that is our only hope. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. But that is a sure hope, a certain hope, not mere wishful thinking. Let's pray. Our great God, you are full of steadfast love, mercy, and faithfulness to your promises. And thus, despite our sin, we have hope in you, hope in your Son, hope in his death and in his resurrection. Have mercy on us, O God, though we do not deserve it. For the glory of Jesus we ask. Amen.